You are now listening to Music Legends with your host, Chili Willie. What's up, everybody? It's your boy, Chili Willie, and welcome to part two of this Music Legends miniseries. This is a spoiler alert. If you haven't already heard the first episode on Dr. Dre, this is where I tell you the rest of the legend. So if you don't have a clue what I'm talking about, you're gonna want to back out and listen to part one. Right now. Hello? You're still here? Awesome! Well, that must mean you listened to part one. So let's do this thing! This should be played at high volume, preferably in a residential area. Okay, let's see, where were we? Oh yeah, that's right. How did that expensive, high-quality strain of weed help make Dr. Dre a music legend? Well, his self-medication was getting his head back into the creative zone of his music, and he started to develop a new friendship with Snoop Dogg. Although, it was through a shared anger of the violence that surrounded them and the record label that screwed Dre over, but that almost made their friendship even more powerful. Snoop Dogg and Dr. Dre went into the studio and let all their wild, raw emotions out. Everything from crude and natural fun, all the way to untamed intentional madness. And what came of this was of course Dr. Dre's Chronic. When the Chronic was released, it peaked at number 3 on the Billboard 200 and sold 5.7 million copies within the first year of its United States release. Out of all of his former bandmates, Dr. Dre was becoming the most successful. This is dedicated to the niggas that was down from day one. Welcome to Death Row. Like we always do about this time. <laughs> yeah, nine dudes. Death Row Records. Creeping while you're sleeping. Niggas with attitudes? Nah, low. Niggas on a motherfucking mission. This album probably deserves a podcast of its own. But bear with me for a minute as I take you through just a couple reasons about why The Chronic has been widely regarded as one of the most important, influential albums of the 90s, and one of the most well-produced hip-hop albums of all time. Some of the first gangster rap songs, including N.W.A. songs, were harsh and abrasive. They were something like the heavy metal of rap. But Dre tapped into something on The Chronic, something that encapsulates the harsh rawness of the lyrics, yet more melodic, smooth, listenable, and had a funkiness about it. Now, if you had to pick one of these records, which one do you think ended up on the radio? This? Or this? To the folks, Snoop Doggy Dog and Dr. Dre is at the door, ready to make an entrance, so back on up. When people listened to Dr. Dre, they felt like a cool gangster rather than a cold-blooded killer. And early fans of hip-hop were freaking out because they never really heard Dr. Dre rap, except for on a few N.W.A. songs. When The Chronic came out, they were excited to know that Dre was rapping on every single track and happily surprised with how he stepped up his lyricism. On The Chronic, Dre wrote all his own lyrics, as opposed to when he was in N.W.A. and Ice Cube was writing the majority. Not only did Dr. Dre write his lyrics, but he produced the entire album as well. Dr. Dre had been one of the first musicians to write, record, mix, and perform all himself. 
AllMusic.com once commented on the chronic, saying, quote, Dre established his patented G-Funk sound, which was fat, blunted parliament funkadelic beats, soulful backing vocals, and live instruments in the rolling bass lines and whiny synths. For the next four years after the album was released, it was virtually impossible to hear mainstream hip-hop that wasn't affected in some way by Dr. Dre and his sound." Unquote. Dre had reached a point where his DJ skills, his rap skills, and his street knowledge had beautifully come together, getting him so, so high. And high on the charts, as well. But even that chronic high can't last forever. Dre hadn't just rapped about violence or reckless behavior, he lived some of his lyrics, experiencing numerous scraps with the law. In 1991, he reportedly hit TV host Denise Barnes and tried to push her down a flight of stairs. The attack was triggered by a segment she'd done on Ice Cube's departure from NWA. Dre faced assault charges and a civil suit for his actions, but both parties decided to settle. Anything that had to do with NWA was a touchy subject for Dre, as it was for everyone involved. Deep down, I think everyone in NWA was deeply hurt about the breakup, but none of them showed it. After all, they were supposed to have an attitude, and they did, but now their attitudes were growing out of control. The following year, Dre again faced assault charges for an alleged attack on the producer Damon Thomas. Then a few months later, he was arrested for battery of a police officer. But after that is when Dr. Dre seemed to take his dangerous behavior to the extreme. So what happened to Dr. Dre that led him to the most dangerous, reckless experience of his life? One evening in 1994, Dre strolled into the recording studio of his record label, Death Row Records. He was feeling particularly proud that day of how far he'd come, of all the lives he was changing. But as he emerged deeper into the dark, vibey studio, he was awakened from his proud state of mind. As he looked around, there was over 20 people scattered throughout the room, drinking, smoking weed, and all-out partying. And 80% of them he'd never even seen before. Okay, this is probably an average day for Dre, but Dre did a double take when he saw everyone pointing their pistols, even assault rifles, at a young man no more than 20 years old. They threatened him, humiliated him, and made him do things that one would only do if there was 20 guns pointed at them. This kid had some affiliation with a rival gang, which led Dre's associates to literally gang up on him. Within a matter of seconds, it was absolute chaos. The tables turned for the good doctor as he stood there and stared at the hell that had broken loose right in front of him. Instead of proud, he was all of the sudden feeling disgusted. He picked up an assault rifle which had been thrown to the side. Dre swung the assault rifle to the ceiling and shot. Everyone stopped instantly and Dre didn't say anything. His expression, oozing of disappointment, said more than words. He threw the gun down and snatched a bottle of liquor out of someone's hand as he walked into the control room. There was an artist Dre had found and enjoyed who was in the booth recording a song Dre was producing for him. The song was called California Love, and the artist's name was Tupac Shakur. Dre silently sat there and thought. 
he knew he was never going to come back to death row, as the label and the violence that surrounded it was growing out of control and way out of his comfort zone. With the bottle of liquor empty in his hand, he stumbled to the parking lot and jumped inside his fast and expensive Ferrari. He threw the bottle across the parking lot and reached in his back seat where he found another bottle and began to drink as he turned on the engine. Dre raced around Hollywood Hills until the wee hours of the morning, trying to forget every thought that was racing through his mind. And he kept going, faster and faster, and this was only the beginning. The next few hours, as Dre became so much more intoxicated behind the wheel, he would draw the attention of the police. But he still didn't stop. In fact, he led a high-speed chase through the winding roads of the Hollywood Hills. The chase ended at rock bottom for Dre when he screeched into a Hollywood Hills driveway and crashed into the garage of a mansion. When the police found him, he only had a few scratches, but the Ferrari was trashed. After undergoing a field sobriety test, Dre was found to have a blood alcohol level of 0.16. That's twice the legal limit of 0.08. Having violated his probation for the earlier battery offense, among other offenses, Dre was sentenced to eight months in jail and ordered to pay a fine of 2350 And this time, Eazy-E wasn't there to bail him out. Dre did his time in the big house. But what did he do with his time in the big house? <laughs> Write some raps, of course. The more time he spent writing, the better rhymes he thought up. So when he was released, he was ready to go with melodies that had been building up in him for eight months, and lyrics that were already unraveling off his tongue. He immediately hit the studio to do what he did best, produce. Guess who's back? Steve. Still doing that shit, Andre? Oh, for sure. Yeah. Check me out. It's still Dre Day, nigga. AK, nigga. While Dre was in prison, his old record label signed Tupac and began to position him as their major star. They even released the successful single, California Love. Even though Dre never got to finish the song how he wanted, it became both artists' first song to top the Billboard Hot 100. So when he returned from jail, Dre was an absolute superstar. Besides working on his own material, Dr. Dre produced Snoop Dogg's debut album, Doggy Style which became the first debut album for an artist to enter the Billboard album charts at number one. Not only was Dre working on best-selling albums, but best-selling movies too. He collaborated with his old friend Ice Cube for the song Natural Born Killers. Ice Cube was making a film called Friday. Later that year, Dre formed his own label, Aftermath Entertainment. He had some investors, but he didn't want any partners. No one to get in the way of his success this time. Dre was working harder than he ever had before just to get out of the gang-related nonsense that seemed to follow him everywhere. Dr. Dre's old label, Death Row Records, suffered poor sales by 1997, especially following the death of their superstar, Tupac, and the racketeering charges brought against Suge Knight. But what if I told you that Suge Knight himself may have been a contributing factor to both Tupac Shakur and Biggie Smalls' death? Well, that legend is for another time, but today, there is one rapper's death I'd like to talk about. At a Hollywood press conference on March 17, 1995, the former NWA frontman, Eazy-E, 
told the world that he had AIDS. In a prepared statement, the rapper's friend and attorney spoke softly and in a deep, somber tone. I'm not religious, but wrong or right, that's me. He said on behalf of Easy e who had been too physically and mentally ashamed to show his face to the press. I'm not saying this because I'm looking for a soft cushion wherever I'm heading. I just feel like I've got thousands and thousands of young fans that have to learn what's true and real when it comes to AIDS. I've learned in the past week that this thing is real and it doesn't discriminate. It affects everyone. Easy e after everything he'd been through, made a final decision to make amends with everyone from NWA. And at only age 31, Easy e had succumbed to the disease. Meanwhile, Dre was showing no signs of slowing down. He felt the weight of what happened to one of his best friends and understood a responsibility to continue his legacy and make a dent in the world. Okay, Eazy-E already made a pretty nice dent, but Dr. Dre wanted to punch a hole, which was actually a whole lot bigger than Dre expected. <laughs> Excuse my bad puns, but Dr. Dre wanted to take gangster rap to the next level. Except at the time, it was looking like gangster rap died along with Eazy-E. Suge Knight was out of money and forgotten. Ice Cube was slowly becoming an actor. Snoop Dogg was facing a draining murder trial. And that left Dre with the task of finding new talent for his new record label. But luckily, Dre was pretty good at that kind of thing. He put his own rap career on hold to focus completely on everyone else's. This is when Dr. Dre became an executive producer. With his own studio and the money to fund it, all he needed to do to punch a hole in the world with gangster rap was go out and get it. Dre started appearing with production credit on songs like No Diggity by R&B group Blackstreet, and sometimes even rapping. Yo, train, Trump, the verse. It's going down, fade to Blackstreet. The homies got at me, collab creations. Bump like agony, no doubt. I put it down, never slouch. As long as my credit can vouch, a dog couldn't catch me. Say, tell me who could stop with Dre making moves, attracting money. But instead of working with only West Coast artists, Dre realized something. He would probably be way more successful if he just left behind the East Coast-West Coast feud and had rappers from everywhere on his new label. After doing this, he found a rapper called 50 Cent, and one by the name of Eminem, who was just coming up and needed someone like Dre to back him up. So, Eminem comes in in this bright yellow fucking sweatsuit, hoodie, pants, everything, it's bright fucking yellow, you know, and I'm like, wow. I'm looking at Dre like, dude, I see you on TV all the time. You're one of my biggest influences ever in life. I'm like, man, listen, I think this shit is fucking incredible and I would love to work with you. And I had a studio in my house at the time and I went and put some samples together, did a couple of things in the drum machine and I invited him over. Dre, you do a lot of recording here? Yeah, most of the recording is down here. Nothing more comfortable than home. I was like, man, listen, I put this sample together. Tell me if you like it. You want to hear one of my joints, man? Yeah. And I hit the drum machine. And maybe two or three seconds went by. And he just went, hi, my name is, my name is. Like, yo, stop. Shit's hot. That's what happened. Our first day, 
in the first few minutes of us being in the studio. Stop the tape. This kid needs to be locked away. Dr. Dre, don't just stand there. Operate. I'm not ready to leave. It's too scary to die. I'll have to be carried inside the cemetery and buried alive. Am I coming or going? I can barely decide. I just drank a fifth of vodka. Dare me to drive? Go ahead. After that first meeting, Dre started coaching him like every other artist he worked with. But Dre was nothing less than a perfectionist when it came to making music. He would stop an artist right in the middle of recording a take if he didn't like it and pressure their full potential out of them. In 2006, Snoop Dogg told the website dubcnn.com that Dr. Dre had made the artist Bishop Lamont re-record a single bar of vocals 107 times. Scott Storch, another producer, told a source, quote, At the time, I saw Dr. Dre desperately needed something. He needed a fuel injection, and Dr. Dre utilized me as the nitrous oxide. He threw me into the mix, and I sort of tapped into a new flavor with my whole piano sound and the strings and orchestration, unquote. Some didn't understand his intense methods, but they all excelled because of it. And Eminem even understood it. After all, Eminem is a perfectionist as well. Dr. Dre loved this about Eminem and produced most of his early records. As he continued to produce and coach other artists into success, he began yearning to make another album of his own. So with the help of his new label and his new accomplices, Dre began work on what would become his best-selling album to date. With 7,900,000 copies sold in the US alone, that's 2 million more than The Chronic. And the reason why that is, is because The Chronic came out a little before its time. So his next album came at just the right time. Nowadays, everybody wanna talk like they got something to say, but nothing comes out when they move their lips, just a bunch of gibberish, and motherfuckers act like they forgot about trade. Nowadays, everybody wanna talk like they got something to say, but nothing comes out when they move their lips, just a bunch of gibberish, and motherfuckers act like they forgot about trade. So what do you say to somebody you hate? What? Or anyone trying to bring trouble your way? One of his off things in the blood of your way? And nobody was forgetting about Dre. In fact, it was quite the opposite. He was touring and getting a lot of attention for the new album. Even a couple years later, he was still getting awards. He made sure to go to as many award shows as he could, just in case he got nominated. But as it turned out, he went to one too many. In November 2004, at the Vibe Magazine Awards show in Los Angeles, Dr. Dre was signing autographs. Dre always enjoyed signing autographs because he could directly connect with so many of his fans that he normally never would. But that would soon change. One of his fans violently assaulted Dre as his guard was down signing an album. G-Unit rapper Young Buck stabbed the man. But the real kicker here is that the attacker claimed that Suge Knight paid him $5,000 to assault Dr. Dre in order to humiliate him before he received his Lifetime Achievement Award. Dr. Dre yet again took a long hard look at the industry and became utterly disgusted with what he saw. So he took a step back from the media and the fame, and at this point, maybe he even wanted people to forget about Dre. Several years had passed as he quietly worked on best-selling hip-hop records from his LA mansion. His top-of-the-line home studio only made it easier to seclude himself from the rest of society and solely work on music. But one morning as he flipped on the television, he was sipping his steamy cup of joe. It was Steve Jobs presenting his new iPod. Today, we're going to focus on the iPod Mini. 
It's the most popular iPod, and that makes it the most popular MP3 player in the world. So that's the one everybody's focused on. Dre thought it was the coolest thing ever. But part of what made it so cool was the iTunes store. He thought to himself, Apple is making hardware and selling it through software. Dre was fascinated. His lawyer had been pushing him to sell sneakers for a while. But Dre didn't feel right about it. Although he knew they would sell, he felt like it would be the wrong direction to go in. After all, Dre is a music producer. He knew nothing about shoes, except that they were used for walking, and they sometimes looked cool. He went for a walk along the beach where he would sometimes go to help him clear his mind and regenerate his ideas. As his feet waded through the sand, someone else on a walk was approaching him. The man had earphones in and was ironically listening to an iPod. But as he quickly approached, he took him out and said, Hey, how are you doing? Dre immediately recognized the man. He was a record producer and the co-founder of Dr. Dre's new record label. They weren't very close other than on business terms. But Dre already knew he was a great businessman. There was a streak of trust that struck Dre at that moment, and he just blurted out, Yo, my lawyer wants me to sell sneakers. What do you think? He looked out at the ocean and smiled. Dre, nobody in the world cares about how you dress or cares about your sneakers. What you should sell is speakers. Dre said, we can do that? And Jimmy replied, fuck yeah we can. And that was that. The two music legends created a new company that would soon be worth a billion dollars. But they still needed a name for it. As they walked along the cove, talking business strategies, they were both excited. Dr. Dre said, you know, I use this word beats. I make beats right. So maybe it should be called Beats by Dre. Jimmy replied, I'm in, let's do this. Dre felt reinvigorated. It was just the change of pace he needed at that time in his life. He officially announced he would be taking a few years off music to completely focus on his new company. So that really got people's attention. The two music veterans began to notice more developing problems in the music industry. One was the impact of piracy on music sales, and two was the substandard audio quality provided by Apple's plastic earbuds. Jimmy later recalled that Dre once said to him, quote, Man, it's one thing that people steal my music. It's a whole nother thing to destroy the feeling of what I've worked on, unquote. But these were problems that they could easily fix with just a little innovation. Dre and Jimmy wanted the opinions of musicians with, quote, great taste. So they brought in MIA, Pharrell Williams, Will I Am, and Gwen Stefani for every single one of their first business meetings. And all of these artists were so intrigued, especially with how the two music veterans were so receptive and open-minded to their ideas. And they were all thinking the same thing. They wanted to make headphones a piece of fashion, yet create a superior music experience so fans could feel the emotion and hear the music the way artists intended for it to sound from the studio. They just started giving them away to every important figure in the industry. Then all of a sudden, trend-setting new headphones were showing up in music videos, in paparazzi footage, on the red carpet, in major recording studios, and even in fashion shows. Beats by Dre was everywhere, and people just couldn't get enough. Take my time.
But it was only the beginning for Beats by Dre. Though the company started out huge, it was steadily growing in so many different ways. With the help of the music industry, it became something that no one ever expected. In 2014, Apple officially announced it was buying Beats Electronics for $3 billion. That was the most expensive deal Apple has ever made to date. In regard to the deal, Apple CEO Tim Cook stated that, quote, music is such an important part in all of our lives and holds a special place within our hearts at Apple. That's why we've kept investing in music and are bringing together these extraordinary teams so we can continue to create the most innovative music products and services in the world, unquote. The Apple Store stocked their shelves with Beats by Dre headphones and stocked their iPhones with a brand new app called Apple Music, which features 30 million songs and a 24-7 radio broadcast called Beats One, the number one. But Beats by Dre won, all right. Beats left Dre to become the richest man in hip-hop, and frankly, one of the richest men alive. But for Dre, it was never about the money. Saw money and cream, gasoline so supreme, stirred under the grid. Get your money right, don't be worried about the next man, make sure your business tight. Get your money right, go inside the safe, grab your stash and recall tonight. You better get your money right. Okay, okay, maybe just a little bit about the money. But more than anything, it's about the creation and the music for Dre. But he'd reached a point in hip-hop that no one else has. What should my next step be, Dre schemed. And on his Beats 1 radio show, The Pharmacy, on August 1st, 2015, Dre announced that he would release what would be his final album, titled Compton, along with a semi-biography, semi-blockbuster film about the formation of N.W.A. called Straight Outta Compton. However, he still wasn't going to dive headfirst into the limelight. In an interview with Rolling Stone, he revealed that he had about 20 to 40 tracks for Detox that he didn't release because they simply didn't meet his standards and he thought he was done being an artist. He also revealed in that interview that he suffers from social anxiety and due to this, he remains secluded and out of attention. But don't get me wrong, Dr. Dre still loves to party just as much as the next billionaire hip-hop kingpin. I mean, legend has it, Dr. Dre started Burning Man. For those of you who are not familiar with Burning Man, it's a several day long festival of art, creativity, and almost no structure. It's hosted in the desert of Nevada, in a temporary city built completely by the participants of the festival. In other words, it's a hippy-dippy, non-hierarchical community, devoid of structures of control. Oh, and the name? Burning Man? Well, they burn a hundred-foot-tall wooden man for the main event. It's been growing and growing in popularity for the last 30 years of its existence, with over 70,000 people showing up in 2015. But let's flash back to 1995, when Dr. Dre was scouting the Nevada desert to find a spot to shoot the California Love music video. Dre and the director of the video stumbled across, quote, a bunch of crazy naked motherfuckers in the desert today. They were putting up some kind of giant wooden man, unquote. And as Dre began to talk to these naked crazy motherfuckers, he found out that nearly 4,000 people or more were expected to show up for a free multiple day festival. Being a financially focused man, 
Dre inquired further into the financial logistics of this event. Dre realized that this was an opportunity to profit from the large amount of people in attendance. The final straw for Dre was that the original Burning Man hippies couldn't afford to pay the land permit that next year. So Dre took action immediately. After leaving his scouting session, he bought the permit for the land under the stipulation that he would begin charging a modest entrance price for each participant of the festival. In 1995, the original price of entrance to Dr. Dre's Burning Man was only $35. By 2010, tickets were ranged between $210 and $360. Ever since the California Love music video, Dre would have silently made $10.7 million from Burning Man, if the legends are true. Check out the links in the description if you want to know more, or check out the letter Dre wrote to his girlfriend about his experience in the desert. But at least the money is going to a good cause, in 2017, it was announced that Dr. Dre had committed $10 million to the construction of a performing arts center in Compton High School. The center will encompass creative resources and a 1,200-seat theater. It's expected to break ground in 2020. After all, Dre knows that Compton is where people need a doctor the most. He might be a doctor to millions of people who love his music so much they say it can cure any illness. But in the end, who was Dre's doctor? Well, he never had one. Dre was truly raised by the hardcore, crime-minded streets of Compton, which was a blessing and a curse that left him empty, but at the same time, full of anger and ambition. This would ultimately lead him to developing an amazing sense of business. And for his music, well, it celebrated a wealth of street knowledge and exposed a certain lifestyle to the world that was so vividly clear, it frankly scared people and sometimes still does. While Dr. Dre isn't necessarily the hero of his own legend, I think his ears definitely are. He heard noises and interpreted them in a way completely unique to him. He soaked up the ghastly ghetto world around him like a sponge and converted it with ease into a cool funky melody that everyone could jam out to. His ears knew how to make the ghetto life listenable and more than that, they knew how to make it cool. Thank you all so much for listening to Music Legends. If you haven't already, share it with some friends. And if you liked what you just heard, write me a good review on iTunes or wherever you listen. I know it seems like a simple little thing, but it really does mean the world to me. This episode was produced, edited, and recorded by me, Chili Willy. I also want to give a quick but big shout out to my friend and teacher, Chase Thompson, who helps a bunch as well. He's a complete badass when it comes to podcasting and pretty much anything else audio related. Thanks for everything. It's only the beginning. And for everyone else, what music legend do you want me to do next? Hit me on the email at musiclegendspodcast at gmail.com or the snail mail or a paper scroll sealed by wax. Whichever way you prefer to transfer words. This has been Music Legends with Chill